Hi, I'm Robin. And I'm Kelvin. And welcome to another episode of Fly on the Wall. Our guest this week is North Carolina State Representative Ricky Hurtado. Before we get started with the interview, make sure you follow us on social media at Fly on the Wall Pod on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. We also love hearing from you, so feel free to send a message to Fly on the Wall Podcast at gmail.com. A son of working class immigrants, Vicky Hurtado found his passion for public service during his time at UNC. He received his master's from Princeton with a focus in fighting poverty and community building. Vicky Hurtado is also the co-founder and co-executive director of Latinx Ed, a nonprofit which seeks to expand opportunities for first-generation college students and immigrant families. In 2020, he became the first Latino Democratic candidate elected to the North Carolina State Legislature. Let's welcome him to the pod. Thank you so much for joining us today, Ricky. We're so excited to have you here. It's great to be with y'all today. I'm excited to have this conversation. Before running for public office, you held a long career in education. You currently serve as a professor at the University of North Carolina and founded Latinx Ed to mentor first-generation college students. How has your role as an educator and mentor informed your worldview? Ooh. Y'all, y'all, y'all came at me strong with this first question. <laughs> I, I think it's it's very much uh, where I find myself rooted in everything that I do. Um, I mean, it's been one of my main motivations to run for office, and we can get into that story in a little bit. But I think mentorship has played such a huge role in my life. Um, and I've seen the power, the transformational power that I can have in other people's lives as well. My students, uh, both in the classroom and then the students in the nonprofit that I that I help run and uh, the impact that it has in first generation college students in general. And so it's certainly shaped my worldview because it, it has proven to me time and time again that it takes a village, right? Anyone um, in life will get to where they need to go with a really strong support system. And so that's been my story. And that's a story of, of so many folks that I've worked with where it, it's really about how do you find that village around you to be able to support you to get embrace some of these challenges, catch you when you fall because we all fall, right? And be able to really rebound and think about what that next step in life is. Uh, mentors were instrumental in, in my life and, and help guide me as I think about what it means to be Latino or Latinx in the South, what does it mean to be a person of color, uh, a, a man of color, right? Um, what does it mean to navigate some of these spaces? And what does it look like for, for me to unapologetically own that identity as well, right? I don't think I go through that personal journey of identity without mentorship to sort of show me what it could look like for me in the future. And so, yeah, certainly has shaped my worldview. Uh, and I'm, I'm excited now that I'm in a position uh, in politics where I can continue advocating around issues of education equity to make sure everyone has the same resources and tools to succeed. And that answer segues quite ne- nicely into our next question. What made you decide to jump into a career in politics in the first place? Yeah, it, it's it's a, it's a uh, interesting story because I wasn't the type of student, right, when I was in high school or college that was running to be part of student government that was thinking about uh, being student body president and really thinking about what my role was politically speaking. Um, The first election that I voted in was in 2008 uh, and it was when uh, President Obama was on the ballot. But I 
was so caught up in surviving, right? As a first generation student, as a son of immigrants, as someone who was like kind of drowning in college, to be honest, right? Just like, what the heck am I doing here? Um, and, and really just trying to figure out what my next step was in life. Um, I voted, sure, but I did not actually understand the implications of what it meant to elect President Obama into office. So I remember uh, in uh, in college here at Carolina, where I'm an alum of, um, I'm saying here because I'm like literally sitting here as I record this, right? But everyone rushed Franklin Street, right? Like we won the championship and like I went to bed. Like I didn't, I didn't really connect the dots, right? It wasn't like a big thing to me. And it wasn't until later that I began to really connect the dots around my story and my journey through education, the journey of other first generation college students and how many of the challenges we face weren't challenges that individual families were faces. It was challenges that communities are facing. And there were systemic challenges when we think about equity, when we think about the role of race and gender uh, and, and how that plays out in society and, and a number of other factors. And so I think for me, it was sort of looking up for my own reality and seeing that these challenges existed everywhere in our community and that there's a history uh, and a lot of policy implications when you think about the role government has had in help both helping advance people, but also in holding them back. And so I think it was in that moment where I got really interested in the advocacy piece of public policy, where making sure we have our voices heard as students, as young people, as community members, and making sure that folks knew what was going on in our community. Uh, I went to the General Assembly uh, here in Raleigh one, one day uh, to advocate on behalf of the students that I work with every day. And I saw the reality of what it meant to be an elected official, where our stories were falling on deaf ears um, as first generation students and students of color, uh, children of immigrants, folks who had a, a slightly different upbringing than some of the folks that we were talking to. And, and I began to realize that until people with this lived experience uh, were in these positions of power to be able to help craft our policies, our laws, that create our education system, the resources that are available in our community, et cetera, nothing was gonna change. And so that's when I began to have a real interest in politics to be able to see that, you know, it's not just that nonprofit or that or that grant that's gonna help move the needle for my kids. It's also what laws are being passed at this local state and national level that is gonna make a huge difference for the future of, of the students that I work with every day. Definitely, thank you so much for sharing that answer with us. As a newly elected representative, how have you built connections with your constituents and how do you advocate for them in Raleigh? Yeah, yeah. For me, the, the community connection is everything, right? It's, it's what fuels me every day. It's what really what we should be doing as representatives, although I feel like some politicians have really lost sight of that. Uh, as to, it's, it's in the name, right? I'm a representative. I'm representing the people in my district. And so for me, it's really about maintaining that connection, even when, when I'm in session and when I'm in Raleigh. And so uh, we've made ourselves really accessible. And I think we set that precedent on the campaign where we um, just had a, a, a number of channels to communicate with the district, whether it's by phone call, via email and newsletter, via social media, really making sure that people had our information to reach out to me. Uh, people are, were often really shocked when volunteers would call constituents and they would leave a message and say, if you have questions or need um, to voice some of your concerns, call this number and Ricky Hurtado will call you back. 
Uh, and it was my direct number, right? And so folks would call me to leave me a message. But sometimes when I was free, I would pick up and people were shocked, right? They're just like, oh my God, it's actually you. <laughs> and, and, and I think that just sort of shows you a disconnect that we have in our community right now where people feel like elected officials are really far away from us, right? But at the end of the day, I'm a community member that is your neighbor that is also living in the same um, sort of circumstances that you are, right? And just like, what does it look like to to be in community together as we solve some of these challenges? I alone can't solve them, right? But as a community, we, we can really begin to think about what um, systemic change can look like for a community. And so right now, uh, we do find ourselves in a moment where we are helping a lot more than I think we we would typically be because of COVID-19. And so constituents have been reaching out to our office pretty regularly to deal with challenges that they're facing around health, around unemployment, around eviction and housing, and a number of other issues. And so uh, the, 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 uh, the thing that folks may not um, recognize from being a state representative, uh, not, not in Congress, but at the state level, is that we have really limited staff and so it's me and my legislative aide, right? And so we're the ones that are tackling these challenges every day. We do have staff at the General Assembly that also help us, a team of attorneys that help us do research and dig into problems a little deeper. But the team that's really responding more than anything, it's us. And so it's been a little busy, <laughs> not gonna lie. Uh, but but I think we've been trying to at least know that there's a there's a there's a line of communication here for you, and we may we may not be able to solve all your problems. If we're we'll at least uh, hear you out, try what we can do, but also point you in the right direction of other resources in the community. And I and I think that I'm realizing it shouldn't be, but is a little bit more of a radical approach than um, some other representatives take, where they 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 aren't necessarily having that level of engagement with their community and only really focused on the relationships in Raleigh with the policymaking part with special interests, lobbyists, other lawmakers. That is a part of the process, sure. But I feel like if we're missing that connection with the people on the ground, the people in your community that you're representing, um, something something is missing there for you. Let's talk a bit more about your advocacy work because you have a very long body of advocacy work. So in your opinion, what are the most important obstacles to accessing higher education for first generation students and immigrant families today. Yeah, I'm. Uh, I don't know how much time y'all got, because I could go on a soapbox here, but I'll keep it short. I, I think for me, what I'm saying fundamentally is that the cost of college is just way too high, right? I work with students every day who are super motivated, super inspiring, and and are really ready to be the next generation of leaders in our community. But that doesn't change the circumstances that they may have grown up in, right? Working class folks who are working uh, a job to support their families as well to sort of figure out, you know, how do we support ourselves? How do we keep food on the table? How do we keep the lights on? Uh, on top of that, how do you continue paying for college? And so for me, even for students who are able to get access to college and maybe step foot on campus, you know, for some people that for your journey is still tough, right? Because it's every year, it's a question of like, how am I going to pay the next semester? Uh, and even if you have figured out the money part, it might be because you're working a job or two while you're on campus. And at that point, it's like, how much time do you devote to earning money to support yourself versus the whole reason that you're there, which is studying and uh, really sort of pursuing this journey of self-development and growth. So it's tough, right? It, I do think that um, first generation students from working class backgrounds do have it 
much more difficult when it comes to sort of surviving and thriving in a, in a college campus setting. And so we have to figure out how we either lower the cost of college or we make it more affordable for families by higher subsidies and scholarships, right? Grants that allow them to pay. Student debt is a huge issue in our country and, and we need to figure out how we get the debt and loan part out of the equation so students can find this as a viable pathway to a future in, in their community. And so I think that for me is one of the biggest challenges is, is the money part, right? And, and so we're seeing more and more students take alternative pathways, right? A lot more online programs, a lot more community college pathways, which are all fine, right? But it's just sort of figuring out what that best fit is and having that access to information that is so critical in making that decision. And so, yeah, money, right? It seems to be at the root of a lot of this and it's, it's pretty expensive these days to be able to, to follow a, a traditional four-way pathway. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. That's definitely also an important issue at Georgetown as well. So across the nation, as well as in, in the North Carolina General Assembly, reopening schools during COVID-19 is an especially potent issue. What do you believe are the top priorities in the reopening schools across the state? Yeah, yeah, great question, hard question, but it's a question that we've all been tackling in different ways, but in, in similar circumstances across the country. In North Carolina, we're seeing numbers drop in terms of infection rates, uh, and, and we're seeing um, sort of in general, right, a uh, uh, following of, of, of health guidelines that has allowed our communities to really be able to for once have hope that things will turn, right, for the better. Um, we also are seeing vaccinations uh, move uh, at this point pretty smoothly, right, as we continue to get more and more of the population vaccinated. Um, every week. Uh, North Carolina's top 10 in the country in terms of vaccinations distributed. Uh, number one in terms of people above 65 years old that have gotten their vaccinations. Uh, and we have some of the best equity data when it comes to um, collecting information uh, around who's getting the data and their race and ethnicity. And I share all this to say is because these are, these are really important foundations to be able to open schools uh, in, in a proper way. We've been in a back and forth, a battle, the General Assembly with the governor, um, I should say Republicans in the General Assembly with Democrats in the General Assembly and the governor. It's become a bit of a partisan fight as it's been since last year around not if, but how we reopen schools. Uh, and so for us, it was really important to ensure that we were opening in a safe way that protected both students and families and educators, right? Like this is a ecosystem that we have to think about critically and, and every part matters. And so we, um, we um, voted against a bill that Republicans introduced in the General Assembly because we felt that the health standards, the, the language around health protocols wasn't um, what the CDC and our DHHS agency was recommending. Um, this week, actually, very timely question because uh, leaders from our chambers and the governor came together to find a bipartisan agreement and that I happily voted for. And that bipartisan agreement was the inclusion of science and health in this agreement to allow us to reopen safely, to continue following protocols that allow students to social distance or their mask, and also have a plan in case we do have future outbreaks. And so I think that is also very important too, to be able to continue to operate this dimmer switch that allows us to open if we need to, but if there's an emergency, be able to pull back as well, right? Because while there's hope, there's light at the end of the tunnel, 
we're still not out of this. And uh, it is really important to continue making sure that all of our teachers are vaccinated and sort of navigating this week by week. I think we're almost there. Uh, most school districts in North Carolina are opening uh, right now uh, in, in some form or fashion. All of our teachers, you know, are in the queue to get vaccinated if they haven't already. Uh, and yeah, it's, it's, I don't think we've, all of us, right? I mean, this isn't, this is true for the nation, not just North Carolina, right? That uh, it, we've never felt as hopeful, right? So for things to slowly but surely get back to normal here in the near future. You mentioned uh, how to open schools has been both a partisan and a bipartisan issue at times. So let's talk more about the politics of North Carolina. North Carolina is a competitive sperm state. Uh, notably, it has a Democratic governor, but a Republican-controlled legislator. So as a Democrat, how do you find common ground with your colleagues in the state General Assembly? Yeah, it's, it's both a, um, a challenge and an opportunity, I feel like. Um, I uh, come from a, um, I won a very competitive race, right? It's a very purple district, uh, one of the most competitive races and counties, communities in North Carolina. And I feel like we have to focus on the 80% of things that really unites us, right? There's common ground around the challenges that we all face as a community. Um, <clears throat> and I think that being able to really focus on that, uh, on those issues that unite us, allow us to have a little deeper conversation. Look, I'm not gonna sugarcoat it, right? The times are tough right now, and not just COVID, but sort of the, the rise in, 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 in the attention around racial injustice and racial inequity in America. Uh, we talk about the insurrection at the Capitol, right? Like folks are traumatized, they're hurt, um, and they're angry. Uh, and, and that hasn't really, gone away. I mean, it's sort of starting to subside, but I don't think it's gone away. And for me, I have really looked to not paint generalizations, but meet people where they are and have conversations one-on-one, -on -one, right? You're going to find folks that are a lot closer where you are um, in terms of your your the issues that you care about and how we go about solutions than you may realize. There's also some folks who, <laughs> who are pretty still pretty far away from, right? So I think for me, it's been about no having a feeling about when to lean into these conversations and when it's like, this is exhausting, <laughs> it's traumatizing, and you sort of have to step away from this because this is not productive right now. And I found myself in both situations as, as an elected official now, right? There's been a lot of really great conversations across the aisle where I've left and said, you know, this gives me hope. We're a lot closer than, you know, maybe sometimes it sounds like on the media. But then there have been a few other questions. Uh, and, I, and, I, and I feel like I should say there's been a few other conversations uh, and th this is the minority, I think, for the most part. Right. But extremists who really have a fundamentally different view of where we need to be going with this country that are anti-democratic, that are anti-American. And I feel like those sentiments are dangerous. And I think we have to be really careful about it. We have to keep them accountable to sort of think about what does the future look like for North Carolina, for the United States, and how do we hold true the values that have created this country uh, from the beginning, right? And, and so I think it's it's a battle that is not over by any means, uh, and, and I am navigating it week by week like the rest of the nation, right? Because I, I certainly think it's a, it's a challenging uh, situation that we're in. But I think the first step in any healing process is that acknowledgement. And so more and more, I'm, I'm hearing folks who are acknowledging everything we've been through and, and are really seeking for ways to, to move forward together as a community. Definitely. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. 
So you are the first Latinx Democrat to be elected to the North Carolina General Assembly. So why do you think it took so long for a Latinx representative to be elected from the Democratic Party in North Carolina? And how do you think the Democratic Party in the state is evolving? Yeah, y'all want all the tea, huh? <laughs> I think it's, it's, I'll put it this way. I think that what I have learned in politics, uh, especially party politics, is that it's an incredibly risk-averse industry, right? People are looking for the path of least resistance to win. Uh, and it's it's tough because every election has such high stakes, right? And so why take a risk on something that you may have sort of a biased perspective on when there might be, in your opinion, a path of least resistance? What I think has happened over the last few years, though, is sort of... Um, you sort of shaken the, the the snow globe, right? It's gotten a little messy where those priors, those assumptions are really being challenged and debunked, right? We saw what happened in Georgia, right? And we saw the mobilization of voters of color and what that's meant when we expand the map and vote on and focus on voters that we know are gonna turn out for the issues that we care about, right? Um, I think it happened in North Carolina, right? Where we've shattered a barrier and showed that a young, Latino candidate can win in a competitive race, right? Uh, we certainly got a lot of pushback, but um, I think that they saw that you know, folks respond to stories and valleys and issues, uh, regardless of who the candidate is. And, and we were able to run a really competitive race that allowed us to see that uh, the uniqueness of our candidacy, but also the shared experiences of all of us, right? And I think the one mistake that a lot of folks make is that they focus too much on the candidate themselves as opposed to the reality of a candidate, right? That we're really, I'm really just a mirror of my community, right? And so when I speak to folks and speak on these issues, what they're really seeing and hearing is is themselves and the community and, and what they're experiencing at the same time. And I think the better we begin to understand that, I think the more successful we will be. And so I'm hopeful that I may be the first, but I'm certainly not the last. And, and I'm excited to work with young folks and, and other candidates who are interested in getting more involved in politics because representation truly does matter. And, and I think that will change the dynamics of how we think about who's competitive and, and who we support in the near future. So zooming out a bit, you kind of already answered it, but uh, nationally, the GOP has already made inroads with the Latinx community from Florida to Nevada. How can Democrats connect with these same communities? Yeah, I think it's, it's um, again, debunking some assumptions on, on who the Latino or Latinx community is and isn't. Uh, and, and I think part of it is understanding that Latinx is a really diverse and complicated identity, right? My parents don't identify as Latino or Latinx. They identify as Salvadoreños, right? They are immigrants from a different country and they identify by their nationality, right? My wife is Mexican before she's Latina, right? Like that, that is her identity. Uh, and, and I think it's important to understand uh, what gets lost in these details when you see the headlines, right? Around the percentage that Trump gained in Florida maybe or, or in Texas or other places. Um, and, and really just complicating that dynamic when it, I think it's important to zoom in a little bit in the Latinx community and say, well, who exactly went for the GOP and who exactly went for Democrats, right? And it's being able to zone in in that geographic and national diversity that allows us to understand people's voting patterns a little bit better, right? 
you know, how are Cubans and Venezolanos voting versus Mexicans and Central Americans? Is there commonalities? Is there differences? And you do see trends and patterns here, right? And so I think in states that have a greater Latinx community, the Democratic Party has started to understand this dynamic and really be able to target folks with culturally competent messaging, right? Uh, being Mexican is very different than being Puerto Rican or being Salvadorian, right? And being able to understand those nuances will allow us to connect with these communities in a much more meaningful way. And so I'm hopeful that we begin to do some of that micro-targeting here in North Carolina as well, that allow us to tailor our messages to the communities that we're actually talking to and not paint this broad brush around who we are as a community. Definitely, it's so important to engage with voters at where they are. So looking at the most previous election cycle, the Senate race in North Carolina was a toss up for a long time between Cal Cunningham and uh, incumbent Tom Tillis. Why was the North Carolina Senate race such a close election in 2020? And how do you think the Democratic Party can be successful in winning the Senate in 2022? Wow. You're asking the million dollar question here. If I have that answer, I mean, <laughs> I think I can make a lot of money if I know the the, the, the answer there. It's it's challenging, right? It's I think everyone has their um, their theory as to why you know people like me won and and, and why statewide candidates lost. Um, and I think a lot of these theories have some validity, right? Once you dig into that, and it's not any single issue, right? In terms of whether we focus too much on persuasion versus expansion of the voting base that would go towards a Democratic candidate, um, whether um, we focus much, too much on urban voters versus rural voters it's, and, or vice versa, right? Uh, I think we, we saw an incredibly tight race in North Carolina. We haven't won statewide for the presidential candidate since Obama in 08. Uh, and we've come close every time. And I think what we're seeing here is that we continue to lose as a party. The margins continue to get bigger and bigger in rural areas. Uh, and we are leaning a lot on urban, uh, on sort of our urban municipalities, right? Uh, that's where dem Democrats are moving to. That's where they live. Uh, and I think that now some of the battlegrounds are the suburbs right outside of those municipalities. And so I think that that is part of what we have to answer in 2022 and beyond is not just running up the margin in the urban areas, but also how can we decrease the winning margin for Republicans in rural areas, right? And I think for us, we have to learn how to have this race class narrative that really connects our issues together, right? How can issues of racial equity and issues facing Latino and black and indigenous voters connect with white working class folks that at the end of the day, when I talk to them are facing the exact same issues that our working class communities of color are facing as well. But why is it that we have dramatically different voting patterns, right? Uh, I think it's the, you know, the, the most masterful marketing sort of scheme of the century, right? In terms of convincing voters to vote against their interests. And I think that's where we all, we have to make that effort to not have this really challenging conversation of either or, right? But it's about building this multiracial coalition of voters that are voting for their interests for the first time as opposed to against it. And I think that if we can figure that out in places like Alamance, that are battleground for the legislature and they're battleground for statewide races in sort of suburban, exurban areas, we will begin to see success again in North Carolina. We know we're running out of time, but before you go, let's do a fly on the wall tradition. 
the lightning round, where we ask quick questions and hopefully get quick answers. Are you ready? Cool. No, but let's go. <laughs> okay, question number one. Once COVID is over, what's your number one travel destination? Oh my God, the beach. I just want to like lay on the beach and just like run around and hug everybody. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So next question. UNC won its first game in the ACC. How do you think it'll do for the rest of the tournament? Uh, we're going to win the ACC tournament and we're going to win the national championship. That's like the answer every year. Come on. <laughs> should have known, should have known. And our final question, Western or Eastern Carolina barbecue? Ooh, I think I got to go with Eastern. I agree. I uh, think Eastern Carolina barbecue sauce. Y'all are going to so make me better. lose some votes here. I know that's a, <laughs> that's a very tough question that I yeah. usually try to <laughs> Yeah, it's Democrat or Republican and Western or Eastern Carolina I barbecue know. around here. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us for this conversation today. We learned so much from you about North Carolina as well as politics in the country as a whole. Yeah, of course. This was a lot of fun. I really appreciate what y'all are doing to get the word out, yeah. to connect with students and hopefully see y'all run for office one day. Always happy to chat with anyone who is interested in getting started in politics. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Fly on the Wall. Before we go, make sure you follow us on social media at Fly on the Wall Pod on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. As always, you can email us at flyonthewallpodcast at gmail.com. See you next week. <laughs>